The world of the Pharisees, honor and shame, and patron-client relationships in Roman culture, the symposium, sin as contagion, all that and more on The Backdrop. Welcome to The Backdrop. This is Curtis. This week for our sermon, we talked about cultural conventions, and we're kind of continuing that on this episode of The Backdrop. We're looking at some of the cultural background to the story that we talked about together on Sunday. We have a lot to get to today, so let's start with the host of this banquet that Jesus goes to, who is a Pharisee named Simon. And it's helpful for us to understand what's going on, to understand a little bit about the Pharisees and how they looked at the world. The Pharisees were one of several groups in ancient Judaism who were trying to contend with the problem, the main problem that they saw in society, namely that they were not free, that God's people were under the subjugation of the Romans. N.T. Wright argues that while the Jewish people, at least some of them, were physically back in the promised land that God had given to their ancestors, in their minds, they were still in some sense in exile because they weren't in control of their own fate. They had a temple, but it was only sort of their temple. It was kind of the Roman temple as well. And that had a lot of effects on the psyche, the, uh, the worldview, the understanding of what, what was going on for the Jewish people. This was a major problem because God had promised certain things that just weren't happening. And so they had to figure out why. Why are things not going the way that they should go? Different groups came up with different answers to this question. There were some groups like the Essenes who just separated from society completely. We get uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've heard of those, are documents that were found at a place where the Essenes gathered. But one of these groups, the group that maybe shows up the most in the New Testament, that Jesus interacts with the most, are the Pharisees. And their understanding was that because Israel is still in exile. That means that Israel's sin hasn't been dealt with. There was too much sin. And so they needed a response to that problem. They needed to fix the problem of sin in order for God to then come through and and make the world the way that it was supposed to be, according to God's promises to the people of Israel. And so the Pharisees focus in on holiness. N.T. Wright puts it this way. When faced with social, political, and cultural pollution at the level of national life as a whole, one natural reaction, with a strong sense of natural, was to concentrate on personal cleanness, to cleanse and purify an area over which one did have control. He goes on to say, their goals, that is the Pharisees, were the honor of Israel's God, the following of his covenant charter, and the pursuit of the full promised redemption of Israel. And that redemption would come through Israel's recommitment to holiness. Kind of like how we see in the Old Testament um, in Ezra and Nehemiah when the people find the scroll of the Torah and they realize how far they have fallen short of this agreement that they had made with God. And so they rededicate themselves to following it anew. That's kind of what the Pharisees are trying to do here. Again, quoting right, the Pharisaic agenda remained what it had always been, to purify Israel by summoning her to return to the true ancestral traditions, to restore Israel to her independent status, and to be, as a pressure group, in the vanguard of such movements by the study and practice of Torah. And when put in those terms, it's kind of understandable, isn't it? They want to see Israel restored to what they saw as its rightful place, as God's people. And they were going to be the agents 
of God in effecting that restoration. And so this is a widespread, fairly influential movement at the time of Jesus that is trying to get people to live according to their understanding of scripture. And that meant strict following of the holiness codes in the Old Testament, especially those that had to do with how one cleansed oneself before entering the temple. Their understanding was, well, if that's how you should be before entering into God's presence in the temple, obviously that's how you should be all the time before you eat or before you um, interact with one another. And so they had very strict codes about how uh, to purify oneself and how to live in everyday life. This all, I think, sounds somewhat reasonable. In fact, there are plenty of Christians today who take an analogous approach to how they ought to live in the world. The problem as we see in this story and in others like it, the thing that Jesus is reacting against in their worldview is that their understanding of how one ought to live, it necessarily excludes huge groups of people, not only Gentiles, which as we can see from our you know thousands of years of hindsight is an issue, but also large groups of Jews themselves who just can't because of their health or their gender, or their uh, wealth and relative social status, they couldn't do the things that the Pharisees were saying that everyone needed to do. The Pharisaic worldview excluded huge groups of people, and that was a problem for Jesus. And that's one of the things that we see in the story that we talked about on Sunday. At the same time, and this is why I wanted to go into this in some detail, the Pharisees have a somewhat understandable view of the world. It's just that it is misapplied in some significant ways. But a little context does help them not be quite so cartoonishly evil as they sometimes are thought of today. Now, part of their worldview was to see sin and shame and uncleanness as more or less a contagion. It was a contagious sort of thing. This, again, was a fairly common worldview in the ancient world. And you can see it in the Old Testament in some of the laws that have to do with contact with a dead body or a woman who is menstruating or really anybody who is bleeding. And we could go through a whole rabbit hole that uh, scholars of religion have gone down to explain why certain uh, things or bodily fluids were seen as unclean, but we're not going to get into all that today. But the idea that was that there were certain things or people or fluids or whatever that were unclean. And coming into contact with them made a person unclean. And so that's why there were all these ritual purification rites that the Pharisees would go through of washing their hands in certain ways and, and committing, doing certain sacrifices and all, and all those sorts of things. So as to remove this stain of uncleanness or sin, depending on the situation, from themselves before they were to start eating. Now, Jesus doesn't do those things. We have all sorts of examples of him and his disciples not following these purification rituals. That was one of the sources of conflict with the Pharisees, in fact. And we see all sorts of examples of Jesus touching those who are unclean, like the stories of Jesus healing the sick, or in the extreme examples, the dead, or in this example of a woman who is unclean touching Jesus at the table. In the eyes of the Pharisees, in their worldview, that would have rendered Jesus unclean as well. And it kind of would have put them in a bind because they were eating with an unclean person as well. One of the things I think is kind of interesting about Jesus and kind of cool is that it's almost as if he reverses the flow. Instead of the uncleanness coming and infecting him, his purity goes and cleans up the unclean. 
The uncleanness of death does not transfer to Jesus. Instead, life transfers from him to the dead person, for example. But this idea of sin and shame being a contagious force kind of adds some of the drama to the story that we looked at on Sunday, when this woman enters the room and approaches the table. You can almost imagine everybody's breath being held to see what was going to happen next because of the effects that they believed it was going to have on their own status, their own cleanness at the meal. But of course, this whole framework serves to exclude people to exclude those who are unclean by birth, like Gentiles, to exclude those who are unclean by health, like those who are sick, to exclude those who are unclean by their conduct, like this woman as a prostitute who would be, by definition, unclean. And I think that's a big reason why Jesus upends all of these norms, norms that, again, are in the Old Testament. But Jesus is showing that God is doing something new. And like Meredith talked about last week, God continues to overturn these norms when he tells Peter to take and eat in the dream, saying that whatever God has created cannot be unclean. So it would be a longer topic for another podcast to go into why and how these rules and norms have changed from the Old Testament to the New. But for now, what we can see is the way that Jesus is upending this understanding of sin as this contagious force that is coming to infect those around this table in this story. And again, I think it kind of fleshes out the perspective of Simon and makes him a little bit more of a sympathetic figure when you understand that this was such a fundamental part of his and his friend's worldview. And this perspective also fleshes out our understanding of what Jesus does at the end of this story, which is to proclaim out loud that this woman's sin has been forgiven and that she should go in peace. Joel Green, in his commentary on Luke, which I highly recommend, he points out that the the fundamental point of this story is that the woman already knows she has been forgiven. That is why this gratitude is exploding out of her in this foolish sort of a way. So why does Jesus have to say it out loud to her? She already knows that her sins have been forgiven. She has already felt the peace that he tells her to go in. And Green argues that what is actually going on is Jesus is proclaiming it publicly. The audience for his words, your sins have been forgiven, go in peace, are not the woman, but rather the rest of the people in the room, the community to whom she is being restored. See, the forgiveness of sins in the ancient world was not fundamentally an individual concern. We are such an individual culture that we see it as an individual thing. I have my own individual sins. They are forgiven by God. And then I, as an individual, can relate to God in a, in a different way because of that. That isn't how the ancient world, and especially ancient Jews, looked at sin. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, the most natural meaning of the phrase, the forgiveness of sins, to a first century Jew is not in the first instance the remission or forgiveness of individual sins, but rather the putting away of the whole nation's sins. And since the exile was the punishment for those sins, the only sure sign that the sins have been forgiven would be the clear and certain liberation from exile. This is a tough one for us to really wrap our minds around because our culture is so different. But the application in this particular story is that when Jesus says your sins have been forgiven, go in peace— He is enacting her restoration to community. He is signaling to all those who hear and giving them the option of either going along with what he's saying and believing or not, that this woman is ready to be restored to the community. 
to become part of the people of Israel again in a way that she would not have been seen by the Pharisees. The Pharisees, because of her uncleanness, would have excluded them, excluded her from the real people of God, so to speak. She'd be almost like a fake Jew because she was unclean. And the people of God, the Jews, were supposed to be clean. So Jesus is saying, and it's doubtful that many of the Pharisees around the table were listening, but Jesus was saying that this woman should be restored in their eyes to the community and be treated as such. And even his words go in peace. He's not talking about the inner peace that she feels having been forgiven. Rather, he's talking about the wholeness of being included in the people of God. Peace, shalom, we've talked about uh, before on this podcast, is an idea of being a whole, is, it's a holistic thing. It's something that has to do with your relationships and your uh, status in the, in the community and, yes, your inner uh, sense of wholeness as well. But Jesus is saying, go in peace, be restored to the wholeness that only comes from being a part of a community, a part of the people of God. So I thought that was an interesting um, outshoot of this whole uh, understanding of the Pharisaic worldview and how the Pharisees saw sin and their own role in the community. So that was kind of the first broad category of, of things that I wanted to talk about on the backdrop this week. The other is instead of the, the Jewish cultural context of this story is the Roman cultural context of this story, because there were certain aspects of Roman culture that influenced the way that this story goes. One of them is uh, what is sometimes called the patron-client relationship. The patron-client relationship was how almost all of Roman society was structured. It was something that applied from the emperor of Rome all the way down to slaves. Everybody was in this web of relationships that had to do with patronage. There's a scholar named Halvor Moxness who writes a chapter in the book uh, by Jerome, edited by Jerome Neri that uh, Meredith has uh, referenced before, and he puts it this way, patron-client relations are social relationships between individuals based on a strong element of inequality and difference in power. The basic structure of the relationship is an exchange of different and very unequal resources. A patron has social, economic, and political resources that are needed by a client. In return, a client can give expressions of loyalty and honor that are useful for the patron. So the basic idea is the patron gives resources of some sort to a, another person who does not have those resources, who's known as the client. And then the client owes something back to the patron. They are obligated to fulfill certain roles in repayment for the resources that they have been received. And fundamentally, these roles, these things that the clients do, are intended to boost the honor, the social status of their patron. The more clients a patron can afford, the higher their status. You see this playing out in the New Testament, for example, when Jesus is talking about who someone should invite to their banquets, how they should invite those who cannot return the favor. This is a fundamental upending of this whole idea. Usually, who you invite is someone who can return the favor, either by inviting you to a banquet in return or by offering you some other service or honor in return. Again, this whole societal structure is kind of hard for us to totally wrap our minds around because it's fairly different than what we do today and how our world works today. There are some echoes of it in some of the ways that we relate to one another socially, but nothing that really mirrors the way that this would have worked in the ancient world. 
the rich could boost their own status by having lots of clients who would show their honor and respect for this patron. But a patron could also um, boost their status by giving money to the city for uh, buildings or that sort of thing. Almost like how uh, uh, a rich person might get the, a building named after them at their uh, college that they had attended. It's kind of that sort of idea. One of the ways that a benefactor could be a patron to the city was by putting on dinners like the one that Jesus is invited to here. They were called symposiums in the Roman world. And at a symposium, a rich person would invite other uh, other honorable people, other rich people who could repay the favor generally. But usually there would be some sort of guest of honor at a symposium who would be providing uh, instruction or teaching or conversation or questions that would liven up the whole proceedings. And there were certain rules governing how a symposium would work. And as I said in my sermon, often they were quasi-public events. Not that the public could join in to the meal or to the conversation, but they could come and watch the proceedings. They could watch the conversation and listen in to what was going on. And so that was one of the ways that a person could become a patron or a, a benefactor in their community was by hosting these sorts of meals that were uh, edifying to the community as a whole because of the conversation that was happening there. And this system of patronage and clients kind of ran all the way up and down the whole Roman society. And so a governor or a general or someone like that, they did not serve the public interest in the way that we might expect today. <laughs> Even if it doesn't always happen, we would expect it today. Instead, they serve the emperor because he is their patron and they are his client. And then they have officials who report to them or wealthy uh, members of, of the city over which they, they rule who would, who would be their clients, and they would be the patrons of those uh, important people who then, because of their status as an important client of the governor, would have clients of their own, and on and on and on, all the way down to the lowest rungs of society, uh, the, the slaves. A client was expected to show honor to and give honor to their patron. So a dishonorable client reflected poorly on their patron. And this is one of the things that's going into this story uh, where Jesus is being accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In a sense, he's being accused of being a patron to those types of people. And so their own dishonorableness reflects poorly on Jesus as their patron, at least in the eyes of the Pharisees and others who would have looked at the world in this fashion. In this light, one of the many shocking things that Jesus does is to say that people should invite those who cannot repay them, that they should do good to those who cannot uh, do good back. He's, in effect, upending this whole system, saying that we all ought to show the care of a patron to others in our lives without expecting the return reciprocal honor that was supposed to come from that. So fundamentally, Jesus is upending this whole system of patronage. But in this story, one, one of the things I think is interesting is that he kind of says to Simon in a sort of sideways way, even if this were the way the world ought to work, you would be failing right now and bringing shame upon yourself because of that. The story Jesus tells about the person who forgives the two different debts, that would have been a patronage sort of story in Simon's ears. It would have been that God, in this case, who is forgiving sins, is the patron who is offering a resource, the forgiveness of sins, that, that nobody has access to. In Simon's worldview, this would have put the one who had been forgiven in debt to the patron. They would have been required to show honor and respect to that patron 
as a form of repayment for the debt that they could not repay that had been forgiven. But what happens in this story? God is offering forgiveness to the woman, to Simon, but only one of them is showing the proper respect that is due to a patron, and that's the woman. The woman who Simon sees, who his friends, the Pharisees, see as shameful, is in fact the one who is honorable in this story. By Simon's own logic, Jesus is saying, he is failing because he has been given a gift that he cannot repay and is now not only not showing the respect and honor that's due, but actively showing dishonor and disrespect to the one that he ought to be in debt to. So reading between the lines, we can say that Jesus, one, is trying to upend this whole patronage system and saying this is not the way that God intends for the world to work. But even if it was, Simon, you would be showing yourself to be shameful. Within your own system of morality, you are falling short because you're not showing the respect that is due to me, God, who is forgiving sins. I thought that was kind of an interesting little wrinkle. And then just a couple words about this word that has come up quite a bit, honor, and its corresponding word shame that I've mentioned both in the sermon and in this podcast so far. Roman and Jewish culture of the time were honor-shame cultures, kind of like some Asian cultures are today. Um, Korean culture, for example, is very much this way. Uh, Everett Ferguson, in his book, Backgrounds of Early Christianity, uh, puts it this way, that classical culture was a shame culture as distinct from a guilt culture. In general, the standard was public opinion. That is, how you were seen by the public mattered more than just it, than it does today. I mean, it matters today, your reputation and those sorts of things, but it mattered more in the ancient world. It is typical, he writes, for moral teachers to judge conduct with the words honorable and dishonorable rather than right and wrong. In our culture, we usually talk about what's right or what's wrong, and we talk about someone is guilty or innocent of doing something that is right or wrong. It was more typical in the ancient world to talk in terms of shame or honor and what is honorable or dishonorable. One of the ways that this matters and is distinct from our culture is that shame and honor were, uh, in the same way that sin was, we were talking about earlier, they were contagious in a sense. Those you associated with could transfer shame or honor to you, even if your own personal behavior did not warrant it. And you see this in um, family relations. A child can bring shame upon a family, or honor for that matter, where even if the parents have not done anything wrong, if the child has done something shameful, that transfers to the parent in some sense. But that's also true around friendship. Those that you associate with socially can be honor bringing to you or shame bringing to you. In the case of Jesus, he's accused of being a friend of toll collectors and sinners. And that's not just some sort of like, we're trying to give you a bad reputation. That would have been a way of saying he is shameful. This is why Simon has the reservations that he has about Jesus. It's almost more surprising that Simon invites Jesus to the table at all than it is that he treats Jesus badly once Jesus is there. There is every reason for Simon to think that Jesus is shameful because of whom he associates with. There are all sorts of implications of this honor-shame culture on, well, all of the New Testament and Old Testament, really. But in this story, where it primarily shows up is the way in which Simon interacts with Jesus and the contrast that it sets up between Simon's dishonoring of Jesus 
and the woman's honoring of Jesus. In fact, I think as we're supposed to, how we're supposed to read it um, with the perspective that we have from Luke, we are supposed to understand that Jesus is an honorable person, despite the fact that by some measures in society, he would be seen as or suspected to be shameful. And what we're supposed to see is the contrast between the woman who recognizes the honor that Jesus deserves and shows it, and on the other hand, Simon, who is misperceiving what's going on, who sees Jesus as dishonorable and therefore disrespects him because that is the only way to preserve his own honor, but in the process is showing himself to be dishonorable. Maybe not in the eyes of his peers, but certainly in the eyes of God, in the eyes of us as readers of this gospel. And that's where that gets into what we were talking about on the weekend during the sermon about foolish generosity. This woman shows what to her culture, to the in the eyes of the Pharisees, would be foolish generosity. But to us, as readers of the gospel, we understand that that foolish generosity is actually showing the proper response to what God has done for her. Hers is the honorable response. Being generous, even though it seems foolish in the eyes of the peers in the room, in the eyes of God, is something that is honorable. That's one of those common threads that runs throughout the New Testament of the last being first and the first being last. And those who uh, are, are rich and uh, selfish in this world have their reward in full and, and all those sorts of things. It's a consistent theme in scripture that we see coming out in this story as well. Honor and shame is a topic that will probably come up on future backdrops as it, uh, as it pops up in other stories that we talk about from the Bible, by the way. In any event, that was a very long episode of The Backdrop, and so we're going to wrap things up there. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it gave a little bit of context for the cultural background of what's going on in this story, because I think it really does flesh out our understanding of what uh, is happening, why things happen the way they do in a story that might seem a little alien to us um, from 2,000 years after the fact. And so I hope this was helpful in that respect. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Backdrop, and hopefully we will see you on Sunday as we worship together at 4.30 at our house. Send us an email at pomonavalleychurch at gmail.com if you need the address and would like to join us. We would love to see you there. And until then, have a great week. Bye. Bye.